Hi, this is Heather Herman. I'm the author of The Corpse Queen, and you're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello and welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, where we collect brief interviews by creators of new or upcoming projects. We'll open with the guests reading an excerpt from their project and then follow with an interview proper. Transmissions posts on the last day of each month. I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on horror, fantasy, and spy genres. Nicholas and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane. In today's episode, we present our interviews with Laura Synth, author of The Clackety, which released this month, and with Robert Atone, author of The Triangle, which is book one of his The Rise Trilogy series. Laura is the author of the newly released The Clackety, a dark and scary tale for kids, but with a wide appeal for adults too. In today's interview, Laura discusses her new book, her inspirations, and what's coming up next for her. Welcome, Laura. There was no shortage of otherworldly concerns in Blight Harbor mainly because it was the seventh most haunted town in America per capita. Nearly everyone had a ghost living in their house or knew someone who did. And we all steered clear of the pair of seats in the movie theater that were always taken, and the streetlight on Derry Road that flickered if you stood under it at night and told a lie. There was the mirror in the town hall foyer that refused to reflect anything, which worked out just fine because we were all pretty sure the mayor was descended from a long line of vampires on her maternal grandmother's side although the mayor's husband was a regular guy named Steve. There were a hundred other things about Blight Harbor to worry about if you weren't used to them, but most of them were basically harmless. Most of them, anyway. We are joined by Laura Sin, who had just her debut novel, The Clackety, that's coming out in late June. So first, congrats on The Clackety. Thank you so much, it's really exciting. So tell us about The Clackety, other than, you know, I love its title so much. Well, the title is uh, is named after our, our first antagonist that we meet, Soa. So our, our primary antagonist is the Clackety. The, the book is the story of Evie von Wraith, and she's a nearly 13-year-old who lives in a very haunted town with her aunt, who's also a paranormal expert. Her aunt goes missing into an abandoned abattoir, and that's where Evie meets the Clackety. Um, the Clackety uh, convinces Evie to make a what he calls a good fair deal, and in exchange for the ghost of a very bad guy that used to terrorize Light Harbor, she'll get her aunt back. So Evie's going into this very strange world, has to make her way through a very strange neighborhood in hopes of finding her aunt, getting the ghost of this bad guy and getting home safely. Sounds super That's quite adventurous. the adventurous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, Laura, what was the genesis for your story? There are a couple. So I will tell you, the first came from my sister who sent me a tweet. I believe it was October of 2019. And the tweet said, haunts from Heloise. She said, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what it means, but I thought it was funny. And I thought of you. So there it is, haunts from Heloise. And I immediately thought, oh, I love this. I love the idea of an advice column, a paranormal advice column. And maybe it's kind of terrible. And maybe it's in a little local newspaper. So that's where the idea started. And I didn't know what to do with it. I just, I just had this idea. And not long after that, um, my family was in Butte, Montana, which is where my husband's from. And my husband said, there's this building I've got to show you. You're going to love it. Come on. And so he takes me to an abandoned abattoir in Butte, Montana. And I take one look at it and I said, I'm getting out. I'm going to go explore, stay here for a minute. <laughs> so I go out and I, I go trespass. I mean, I was trespassing through this building and this building's incredible. It's it's so spooky and it's strange. And on the back wall are all of these birds somebody's painted on the back wall. They don't make any sense. And I'm taking pictures and videos. And I thought, okay, so I've got things are starting to come together. And I've I've got this this otherworldly 
paranormal advice column and I've got this building, but I don't know what to do with any of it. I thought I need a, a protagonist. Who's, who's my main character? And I got to thinking about um, stories that I, I would have loved when I was young. I was a kid who had a lot of anxiety. I still do. But as a child in the 80s, we didn't really talk about those things. And so I was just kind of a weird kid. It wasn't until I was much older that I knew what it was and had a name for it. And I thought, well, what if my protagonist has anxiety, but she knows what it is and she knows how to deal with it. And, and it's just part of who she is. So what if I drop a kid who's a very anxious kid into a very strange world and make her go on a quest? And that's kind of where this came from. Oh, that sounds very fascinating. Thank you so much for insight. You know, it really does kind of help bring it together. So what have been some of the other influences on not just the clackety, but yourself as well, be it literary influences or maybe filmic? Mm -hmm. I think this is such a challenging question because anyone who creates is influenced all the time. And it's so hard to, to say when we're being influenced, I think. But there are some I can point to um, with, without question. And the first would be the work of John Bellers. He wrote middle grade Gothic horror, um, was writing, I think primarily in the seventies and eighties. So I was reading him as a little kid. And he wrote a book called The House with a Clock in Its Walls, which was then turned into a movie a few years back. Um, and those books were illustrated by Edward Gorey. And I fell in love with those books in particular, but with horror in general, that was really my gateway to horror. So it was my introduction to, to spooky stories and the power of spooky stories. So Bellers was absolutely a, a real influence. And then I have to, I have to acknowledge that uh, Gaiman's book Coraline is very, is very important to me. It really showed me what you can do in children's literature and how far you can go. Coraline is scary. It's, it's, it's legitimately scary. And, and it almost in a strange way gave me permission to write this story. I thought, well, well, if, if kids can read Coraline, they can certainly read this. So those are, those are two influences that are, uh, that are undeniable. And then as far as films go, the, I suppose it's my favorite film, but the aesthetic of Pan's Labyrinth, I think is so, so incredible. It's so singular. And I think about that often, not to say that I would compare the world of Clackety to Pan's Labyrinth, but I really was inspired by how truly special and unique that world was and dark, dark, but also magical. And I, I just thought that was brilliant and beautiful. I can't say enough about how much I love that film. Just out of curiosity, have you seen the movie uh, City of Lost Children? I know that I did years ago, but I, I'm afraid I don't really remember much about it. Might, might be a good revisit for you. It's an excellent, uh, what's his name, Jean-Pierre, Jean the same guy did Amelie, but yeah. oh, it's a wonderful, uh, not a kid's movie, even though it's from a kid's point of view, but a wonderful world with a dark, you know, almost proto-Caroline, I would say. And mm -hmm. on Edward uh, Gorey, Mark, I, I do love the how within the clack, the, I know folks can't see it, but you know, the book is peppered with black and white uh, images that kind of evoke the old Edward Gorey stuff. And it's so cool. I mean, oh, I, I can't say enough good things about the illustrator. Um, Alfredo did a, an, an incredible job with this book. I mean, I love the cover. It's just, it's so, it's, it's kind of sweet, um, but in a little bit of a scary way. But it, it really is intriguing because you, you want to know, well, what's going on with this girl, you know, and all the things that are going on around her. Very yeah, were you involved in any of the collaboration to make the cover at all? Or was it just, hey, does this look cool? Thumbs up? I mean, because that so, is a cool cover. So I, I am the first to say that I absolutely adore the cover. It is, I, I, I couldn't have asked for a more perfect, more beautiful cover for this book. And as far as my involvement, I'll say that I was very involved and not at all involved. <laughs> and what happened was um, I, I was presented with a number of illustrators. You know, I didn't have final say, but, but, you know, the question thankfully was asked, do any of these speak to you? I saw Fredo's work and, and was blown away. And so I started kind of internet stalking him and looking for everything I could that he had done. And lo and behold, he had illustrated the covers of some Spanish editions of John Beller's books. Mm -hmm. oh, and when I saw that, I, I emailed my editor and my agent and I said, this 
it's got to be Alfredo. He's he's going to get this story. He gets he gets Bellers. He's going to get it. So it truly felt like coming full circle when mm-hmm. when when I was able to work with him. As far as the, the my not being involved at all, I I really didn't give Alfredo any direction at all. Um, we chatted back and forth a little bit. Um, I knew that he got the story, but when I saw that cover, I'd had no input. It it was it was what he saw when he read the book. Was it a weak knees type cover that when you first saw it? I'm glad I was sitting because you know you I, I saw the email come in and I was a little nervous. I thought, well, this this could go many different directions. And uh I just truly I, I can't speak enough. And uh Karen Lee was the designer. So Alfredo Caceres and Karen Lee are responsible for that beautiful cover. Other than uh, kind of going back the other way, were there any challenges that you encountered while writing the clacking or the clacking? This is an answer that's going to give some writers hope and make some writers really angry with me. <laughs> um, the Clackety wasn't my first manuscript. I'd written one other and uh, it'll probably never come out of the proverbial trunk. So when I got to the Clackety, I, I was ready to try something new. And to be very honest with you, I, I wrote the first draft in less than two months. Um, it, it was a joy. Writing this book was an absolute joy. I am not a, I'm not an outliner. I'm not really a, a plotter. And so I just kind of wrote the story. And of course it's been through some edits and it's, um, it's a much better book thanks to my agent, Allie Herring and my editor, Julia McCarthy. But it's, it's really the same book that it was when, when I wrote it in that first draft. So there, there weren't, there frankly weren't a lot of challenges with this one. I will say writing the sequel, I hit a point at about 85%, 90% done. And I emailed my agent and said, I need you to, I, I never sent her things early, but I sent her this. And I said, Ali, I need you to read this because I think it's garbage. And I think I need to start again and just tell me, just be honest with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, she just wrote back to me and said, Laura, you've done it. You just, just finish it. You've done it. So I had a real crisis of confidence with the second one. Um, but, but the clackety, no, no, I have to admit it, it was, it was a joy. So uh, did you already have an idea for a second book or did that kind of come out of the blue for a second book? I was signed for a one book deal. So there was no guarantee there would ever be anything beyond the clackety. Mm -hmm. And I started working on another story with another main character set in the same world. I really want to treat Blight Harbor kind of like my Castle Rock. I want it to be a place where lots of stories can happen and introduce many characters. So I had this character that I really liked and this story that I really loved and I couldn't connect with it. And so I finally decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give this story to Evie. And this is going to be the second part of what I hope will be a trilogy for Evie. And no one may want it. It may be that I never sell it, but it's, I don't know what else to write. I can't write this any other way. Fortunately, when when I gave the story to Evie, I reconnected with it and I understood how to tell it then. I'd been telling it from the point of view of a of a boy about her age, and I just I couldn't couldn't quite get there. We're now at a point where we know for sure that the Blight Harbor books will be a trilogy, and right. the Nighthouse Keeper is the name of the second book, and that's in edits right now. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. So since the clackety, well, by the time this episode drops, the clackety have been out for a couple days, but mm-hmm. gotta ask though, so what are you most proud of with the clackety now that you've accomplished it? I'm, I'm proud that I was able to maintain my vision. I really wanted to tell a story that, that, that is legitimately frightening. I wanted to tell a story because here's the thing. I think kids are so much braver than we give them credit for. I think kids are braver than adults. I think that they are just better than us in, in just about every way. But kids um, can handle scary things. And kids have this wonderful habit of believing that magic is real. And so I really felt like it was important to not write down to them. So I'm so proud that I was able to write a book that I believe has truly frightening moments, but still has a lot of heart and is appropriate for the audience. Um, though, those are probably the things I'm most proud of. I'm, I'm proud of finishing it. I'll be, I'll be honest, um, <laughs> getting it done and knowing it's going to be on shelves. I'm proud of that. Yeah. I, I think those, those are the, the main things, but really just being able to keep the integrity of the story and 
treat my audience with respect. It's definitely an evolving um, audience because I think when I was a kid, stories tended to be kind of linear, you know, point A to B and not a whole lot of subplot. And um, now it's much more complex and more interesting. And I mean, even as an adult, I, I enjoy reading, you know, young adult uh Oh man, uh, the YA section is huge with yeah. complex fantasy stories now. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's cool. Very robust. And we're seeing middle grade horror is really an emerging market. I've been fortunate to get to know a lot of middle grade horror writers, and there's just more and more coming out, which I think is really exciting. And what I see is is common amongst all of us, or yeah, I would actually say all of us. And, and I, I hesitate to speak for everyone, so I'll speak for myself here. I think when you write for a middle grade audience, especially when you write a genre like horror, you're entering a contract with the reader, but also with their grownups, with, with whoever their, their, their grownups are, that I'm going to take, I'm going to take you through a spooky journey here, but at the end, things are going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. This is going to be okay. And I think it's just such an exciting, um, an exciting market and genre to be writing within. And I, I see all of those writers treating this audience with that same kind of care and respect, which is, which is just the best. Um, well, we are getting to the end of our, our interview. It's gone so quickly, um, but obviously you've got a second book that's uh, going to be uh, coming out uh, later. Uh, any other future books or projects that you can tell us about? Let's see, The Night Housekeeper is scheduled to be out September of 23. And then the third book, which is for now titled The Loneliest Place should be September of 24. I don't have any other projects contracted right now. I have things I wanna work on. I, I need to get through the Blight Harbor books first. And there are some things happening with Clackety that I can't talk about right now, but, but there, there, there are, there's stuff. There's, there's fun stuff that, that maybe someday I'll be able to share. So, um, the Blight Harbor books for now, and then hopefully more to come. I, I see television show. I see uh, merchandising. I it's see cartoon. all sorts of good stuff. This, this, this is Netflix cartoon right here. It's oh, totally okay. I hope the universe is listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, for right now, though, your debut just it, super, super congrats on the, on the, on the clackety. I like saying <laughs> it, but it is kind of, you know, it's an amanana pia which is always fun to do. But again, congrats on your debut. We hope yeah. it's super successful for you and we hope uh, continued uh, great things come for you with your next two books. Oh, thank you. And thank you both so much for having me today. Robert is the author of the Rise Trilogy, Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares, and several short stories that have been published in numerous anthologies. He's also the progenitor of Spooky House Press. A returning guest will be chatting with Robert about The Triangle, book one from his trilogy. Welcome, Robert. How much do you think we'll get for this stuff? I asked Dad as we made our way back toward Coral Cove. Our boat, the Quint, was loaded to the brim with scrap from our most recent haul. I watched the horizon, looking for home, imagining the next project I was going to work on, like maybe adding weapon capabilities to my drone, wondering if we'll be making a trip up north to the pontoon city next, or thinking about if we had any gull steaks left over for dinner. It was as if all of these thoughts cluttered my mind at the same time, and sorting through them was as easy as collecting sand in the ocean. I'm not sure, Azzy. Enough to get you some rotors for that drone you're always fiddling with, Dad called down from the wheel. He always preferred piloting the boat himself instead of leaving it to the autopilot. I continued to watch the horizon. That drone is called Eagle Eye. It has a name, I shouted up at Dad, cracking up. You won't make fun of it when it spots some treasure one day. You'll see. My best friend Ellis and I had been working on my drone for a while. I got most of the parts with the scrap and gift credits I got for my 15th birthday last November. Turning 15 was a fairly unremarkable event, not like when I turned 13. Dad said turning 13 was bad luck or bad juju, as he called it. I didn't know why he thought that, but I read in one of my books that 13 was apparently an unlucky number. Nobody thought about unlucky numbers anymore. The world, at least everyone in Coral Cove, believed that the melting of the ice caps and rise of the ocean was about as unlucky as anyone could get. And since then, nobody paid much attention to the old ways. 
I remember when I stopped going to the Sunday gatherings in the square. Slowly, I just used Sunday mornings as a way to get caught up on work around the store, repairs to our boat, or time spent with Ellis fishing, reading, or getting into trouble around the cove. Not too many people went on Sundays anymore. A few of the Guardians, Junebug, Navigator Moore, that's about it. Watching the horizon, it was hard to imagine it once covered in buildings, mountains, and forests. When the rise happened, it wasn't overnight or anything. At least, that's what Navigator Moore said. Dad, too. I couldn't understand why engineers and mechanics and stuff weren't able to fix the planet in time. But Navigator Moore said it was because people don't always see the same sides of the problem. He's a smart guy. That's why he's the navigator, I guess. When Navigator Moore would teach history class, he would talk about the world in a sad way. The old world, I mean. He wasn't around when the wise happened, but when he was a kid, he knew people who were. Those people are gone now, of course, and some are just kids when the ocean started to rise. He's about 80 now, I think. I can't imagine what a skyscraper is or what a highway looked like. I've never seen a tree except in pictures. They seem pretty. Arms of brown stretched to the sky with green leaves blocking the sun glinting in the daylight. When the navigator spoke, it was almost like he missed the cluttered horizons of cement and steel structures, things he never even saw. I wonder if he truly did miss them, or if he just missed the people who once filled those cold-seeming places. We are joined today by Rob Atone. Rob, you've been on about two years ago. It's been a while. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you both for having me again. Oh, it's always great to see you online and also great to talk to you. Uh, these past two years, you've had you've been quite prolific you've had a lot of stuff come out uh i, I think the list would be you, your uh spooky house released deeply personal you've had short stories and even in the grave unburied and of course the call of Cthulhu. well anything we've missed you've had qu quite a prolific last two years thank you thank you yeah i'm i'm proud of uh everything we've been able to do with spooky house and um Really proud of that book. It's ridiculous. Um, Deeply personal is a lot of fun um, seeing that come together. So, uh, you know, we've got some other projects on the horizon. We have, as of now, at least two on the horizon uh, with Spooky House. So pro probably one uh, to close out 2022, maybe by holiday 2022. And then, um, or at least maybe even, maybe even fall 2022. And then we'll have some other stuff in 2023. But uh, yeah, super busy. Really, really happy with the Call of Cthulhu story. <laughs> um, I uh, that was a really weird call when I saw it, and uh, I like their their process was kind of cool. So like, they asked for pitches first, so I didn't have to like write it, and then I pitched it, I wrote it, and they liked it, and that was that. See, I this is why you need more things going into public domain. Um, I remember it was about. A couple years ago, James Bond went in the public domain, like just in Canada, mm -hmm. nowhere else yeah. in Canada. And some small publisher put out a very limited run of James Bond Cthulhu stories, and they were all snatched up. And uh, oh man, I want to, I, I want to read those so bad. So we're we're definitely uh, curious about Call of Cthulhu, and I think Kevin Wetmore's in that one too. Oh, is he? Yep. I, I think he jumps on board anything that's wacky. Okay, <laughs> this is definitely wacky. I. I thought that was a misprint. No, no. Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> Winnie the Pooh legitimately went in a public domain. And as soon as that happened, boom, we've got Cthulhu Winnie the Pooh story. So we know what we we know what we got to do a future podcast on. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely got to do that. But that was uh that was really cool. Yeah, Kevin Wetmore is in there, uh Christine Morgan, um, Pete Rollick is in there also. So it's like I'm I'm in good company. I feel really really um honored to be with all those people um pete was nice enough to blurb my ya book too like it was really cool it's really neat to be with them and um my story is uh an owl centric story and i think there really weren't too many owl focused uh <laughs> stories pitched but i've always liked owl the most out of anybody in the hundred acre wood so I was really charged up to tell an owl story. <laughs> and um, I was a little, so we weren't allowed to use Tigger because Tigger is the only one that Disney decided to uh, re-up their uh, ownership of. Really? And um, yeah, so I, uh, I was a little disappointed that I couldn't have Tigger get taken apart by tentacled things because I hate Tigger. 
but uh <laughs> yeah. yeah i just think he's oh, arrogant we have to rethink our friendship here buddy no <laughs> he's all about the ti double gutter I love Snicker. I, I know it's not Winnie the Pooh, but I, knowing a tone here, I could see him, you know, wringing his paws in anticipation for Berenstein Bears to go public domain so he could write a wicked Berenstein Bears story. <laughs> Berenstein or Berenstain? Uh oh. I mean, you know, there, there was an angry video game nerd uh, episode where they dived into an alternate reality where it's truly spelt that other way. And it was very <laughs> bloody. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, yeah, I was I had a lot of fun writing it. I actually so it, it clocked in. I think it's at I think it's six thousand words and I wrote it in an hour. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was the fastest I think I've ever written anything. And that's obviously like before I went back and edited it and whatnot. But like, yeah, it, it all just kind of poured out one night. I had I looked at my wife's collection of Winnie the Pooh stories and I was like, I got this. And then I went and did it. And he, they he really liked it. Uh, the the um, NJ Baker, uh, Neil Baker is the editor on that. And um, I'm just really happy to be there. It's really cool. Well, there you go. History in the making, part of the first wave of horror Winnie the Pooh stories, and a tone is writing that crest. I'm very happy. I'm like, it's it's funny because the, the anthology came out, and then that um, horror movie got announced. That's Winnie the Pooh, uh -huh. uh, or whatever. And I was like, I'm so glad that we beat them to, to the public because uh, that looks not great. But I know our anthology is great. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's supposed to be a slasher film with uh, Pooh and Piglet as slasher villains. I I don't think they've I, released I, a trailer yet, but just images from it, and it looked yeah. like like a really bad Five Night at Freddy's deal, you know, with yeah. things in it. Well, I didn't um, Nicholas Cage do some sort of movie with where he's in like a Chuck E. Cheese Willy's Wonderland. Yes, yeah. where he doesn't say anything, just kick everyone's butt. That movie's great. <laughs> got another podcast episode to talk about. We might have to have a guest, you know, to uh, partake in the conversation, <clears throat> Rob. I'm I'm all for it. I loved that movie. So. <laughs> so that's been the past two years, but we're here to talk about your current endeavors, and you have a new trilogy, the Rise trilogy, and you had book one, the Triangle, came out back in April, and book two, the Deep, that's I think coming out this summer. So. Tell, tell us about them. Uh, tell us about the Rise Trilogy. What's it about and how did it come about? Sure. Yeah. Um, I was uh, getting my MFA uh, in children's literature. And part of the program was we needed to either have three uh, picture books, um, a middle grade uh, book or a young adult book by completion of the, the MFA program. And I was like, okay, well, this is a nice challenge to myself to see if I can work within the confines of what they want me to do and work with a mentor and et cetera, et cetera. So I wrote the triangle uh, as part of mine and I actually finished it before our program was done. And I started writing another thing <laughs> and like, I wasn't able to really, I haven't done much with that since, um, but I was able to really put this together. I wrote it in one um, POV first, I wrote it in third person. And then my mentors were like, oh no, YA really sells well at first person. And I was like, oh good. So now I have to rewrite X <laughs> amount of pages in first person. Sounds great. Um, so I did that and I really was kind of inspired by like my obsession when I was a little kid with the Bermuda Triangle. And cause like, I feel like we were all kind of obsessed with the Bermuda Triangle at some point. Um, just because it's so bizarre and so weird. And like, I always imagined that, and I hate flying, like flying scares the hell out of me. It's the only thing that I'm afraid of. I always thought like a second I get on a plane, it's going to be like, oh, well, you just have to go this way a little bit. And then boom, I'm in the Bermuda Triangle and it's over. So I've always been freaked out by it. And uh, I wanted to sort of explore that a little bit. And um, I get to spend an entire book in the Bermuda Triangle. So that was fun. I, I think people's obsession of a Bermuda Triangle comes from one of three places, Unsolved Mysteries, In Search Of, or old episodes of Johnny Quest. 
So <laughs> my, my obsession <laughs> is from two uh, in search of, because I can remember watching um, that as a, as a little girl. Um, and in fact, being just totally enthralled by, I think it was Mel Fisher, who was the diver mm-hmm. and he had found uh, the uh, crystal skull. It was always just really fascinating to me. And I think there's an author, I think it's Charles Burtz or something like that, who wrote about the Bermuda Triangle back in, I think, like the late 60s, early 70s. Um, And so that was kind of how I got into it. And of course, my dad was was interested in mysteries and things like that. Okay. Um, But that's me. Yeah, I had had seen that in search of episode also because they played it on... um, I guess this was like the early days of the sci-fi channel because they used to play the old in search of episodes on there. And I saw it on there as a little kid and I was like, oh my God, this is terrifying. But then I remember going to school and they had, and I've been looking for it ever since they had this book. It was a hardcover book, had a green cover and it had the plastic around it. Remember how the libraries in school used to put plastic around all the hardcover covers. Um, It had that. And it was all about like the Dover demon Bigfoot, aliens, the all this cool spooky stuff that we all loved growing up. And like uh, the Bermuda Triangle had a healthy chunk of the book dedicated to it. And I used to take that book out of the school library all the time. And that's sort of like where it got me charged up about it. Well, that's obviously uh, what kind of was your catalyst. Um, what other kind of research did you go about uh, for completing the trilogy you know watching movies such water as, world such as water world <laughs> uh, paranormal books obviously um and um what uh influences i've always my favorite lovecraftian creature has always been dagon i've always loved dagon more than really anything else so like in putting together this book i really my goal was to sort of try to do like you know, a teenager's first approach to Lovecraftian storytelling or like Lovecraftian creatures or whatever you want to say. So with the triangle and then the whole trilogy as a whole, as a whole, I really wanted to take sort of the, the Lovecraftian tradition and distill it to a young adult level. That was really the main goal. Cause I, I love that stuff. And I know, you know, everybody's like, has their hot takes and opinions on uh, Lovecraft and all that stuff. But like, I think there's the world that's created and the things that are created and it's just so robust. And I think introducing that to younger readers earlier on can only be a good thing. So that was really where it came from. So I I studied up on Dagon. Mostly I looked at artwork of how different people depict Dagon. And I wanted to sort of play with some of that, but change it a little bit at the same time. And so uh, my version of Dagon is one-eyed um and they are featured on the cover of the second book which i did i don't michelle did i send that i i know i sent it to nick yeah you, you sent it to our hp love cast okay uh so we've seen it but you haven't publicly revealed it but yeah, yeah when we saw it we're like we were thinking strong glacky vibes as well so very exciting thank you yeah i'm i'm excited about it i think um the the second book really i i I wanted to do something different. So like if the first book is um, sort of a more up the ante version of like an aliens type story, like alien or aliens, this one is definitely the second book has more of an action component to it, especially like the last 30 pages or so. Um, I wanted to stretch my legs. Like every time I write something, I want to try and stretch my legs a little more, see like what else I can do um, and challenge myself. Cause if I'm just doing the same stuff over and over again, I'm going to get bored. So like the second book has um, a pretty intense action sequence at the end. That's um, like, I keep jokingly calling it like my version of the battle of Helm's deep (laughs) and it's, it's really bonkers. And like, I really wanted to try to capture like the idea of like how horrifying a battle could be, especially to a teenage, a young teenager Mm -hmm. um, and some of the people around her. And I hope that translates. I just reread it because I just turned in edits yesterday for it. And I, I was rereading it and I was like, whoa, <laughs> I was like, this is rough. <laughs> like th- things happen here that are rough, but I don't know. I hope people like it. Now, you mentioned one of the challenges since you like this, like you said, you like to challenge yourself was one different audience. You had to switch from third person to first person. 
but this is also, I believe, your first shot at a series. Your prior work has all been standalone short stories or standalone novels. So was there any sort of challenges or new uh, headspace that you had to get into to write, you know, a trilogy? Yeah, yeah, for sure. There was, um, I try to keep all of my my short fiction and and actually the longer thing that I we talked about off air or whatever, that's all sort of in in my own little weird little literary universe that I'm playing with. But so like I sort of took that kind of approach of keeping things mapped, like not only physically on like a document, but also in my mind. I took that same approach to this. So it carried over and it actually worked really well in terms of like, here's how I, you know, see this trajectory going. I have all three novels planned out. Um, it does change a teeny tiny bit, but like, you know, that's kind of the fun part when it deviates a tiny bit from the plan. But um, yeah, it was easy to keep things uh, in order. And I knew where I want my lead character, Aslan, who's named after my niece. Aww. I know where I wanted her to, to go be by the end of the third book. So her story's for sure mapped out and her emotional touchstones are mapped out. Um, you mentioned that you have everything mapped out. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious when uh, writing a series, is there at any point that you start hearing from readers and you are like maybe you know working on book two or you're going into book three well some of that uh feedback that you get back from readers will that kind of influence like maybe how you're going with your with your story maybe deviate from your original plan yeah for sure um that's an awesome question so like one of the things that people have said in the the second uh book is the lead character aslan is very different then how she's similar, but also very different. She's a little more sure of herself in the second book. And the opening pages, some of my beta readers and stuff have been like, she's scary. Like she's <laughs> actually kind of scary. And um, I was like, good. Like, that's kind of how I want her to be. Like she is a, she's becoming a very strong woman. Like she was a strong child and she's a strong young woman. Like that's how I want her to be. I want people to be afraid of her. And I want people to be inspired by her and afraid like I, I you know it's she's been through a lot in the first book which you know I hope when people read it they they enjoy it but um in the second book she goes through even more and um she gets put through the ringer but I I, I and I feel bad because it's like I would never want anybody to ever go through the things that this girl's going through but at the same time it's it's required i guess it's like it's rite of passage type stuff uh what are they you know uh buildings roman or whatever whatever that i'm an english teacher so we're supposed to use that term but i always just use coming of age all of that you know stuff so yeah the feedback definitely changes how she's evolving and how other characters are evolving too some people have have um mentioned that they were a little upset about something that happens to the the secondary character at the end of the first book and, um, you know, they were like, wow, they went through so much and they don't really get much out of it. And I was like, well, sometimes we all go through a lot and we don't get much out of it. So that happens. That's life, you know. So you mentioned earlier, you know, you were wanting to take a little bit of Lovecrafting stuff, distill it down and put it into, a, you know, YA format to make it a little bit more palpable for that type of audience. But what what are some other like major things that you wanted to accomplish with the uh, the rise trilogy i wanted to see if i'd be able to um write a little more technically with you know in terms of the things that because the, the lead character is an engineer so i wanted to sort of challenge myself and, and figure things out that i know nothing about like i know nothing about boats i know and so thankfully i have a friend who's very familiar with boats and he kind of walked me through hey this is how this would work uh i told him how i wanted things to end originally and his response was there's no way that would work <laughs> so, I had to it. so, so kind of growing in that, but also, um, you know, I don't, I'm not like a gun guy. I'm not, you know, I'm not like a weapon person. So like writing action, I wanted to challenge myself with that stuff too. Um, so I wanted to learn more about, I guess, weapons. I didn't become like a gun guy. Like, I'm not like, yeah, I'm going to go out and buy a rifle. Like what? But, you know, I wanted to see if I could write those things and have them be believable. And in the second novel, I challenged myself with even more of that sort of stuff, like more of that technology, more of that stuff that's like cutting edge now. But because this takes place in the future or like a, a proposed future, it's like it, it was 
invented but like not used as much because the world sort of ended and so i have something a piece of technology that does exist and it's it is a thing you can watch footage of on youtube and it's horrifying it shows up in the final battle of the second book and uh i just hope i did that justice so again like more technical more about fighting more like i learned a lot from like um carol geisander writes action incredibly well and um another author teal james glenn writes action incredibly well and so i had them sort of in mind when i was writing the action because they've helped me with some action sequences in the past you know so i was sort of keeping like their um you know thoughts and, and recommendations in mind as i was writing too well rob uh we're getting ready to wrap up the uh interview uh wanted to know what kind of future projects that you you or spooky house your uh publishing group have um and i hope you'll mention hopefully nocturnal uh creatures which i had the uh, the wonderful opportunity to read ahead of time yes thank you so much again and i really appreciate your kind words it's really it's always like nervous when I ask for stuff like that. Cause like, you know, who am I? <laughs> Cause it's like, I don't know. It's weird, but like, yeah. Nocturnal creatures is uh, the uh, novel that I wrote about Bigfoot who uh, my, my wife makes fun of me about constantly. Uh, <laughs> Cause I just, I love Bigfoot. Like I, I think if any of them could exist, maybe. Um, but I don't know. I think, um, it's it's meant to be sort of a it's for adults but it is also a coming of age tale and it's it's very much about uh upstate new york it's sort of a love letter to upstate new york region that i love sort of the sleepy hollow sort of um orange county-ish uh putnam county westchester county type area and um it's also what i jokingly have heard some other people who've read it describe as the strangers meets aliens and i was like okay that's weird uh but okay that works i guess but it's um it's very dark it's very weird um and i wanted to sort of play with the mythology surrounding bigfoot and some some of the the different accounts related to bigfoot and um you know, some people think like oh does it have powers is it this like why has nobody seen it blah 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 and I sort of wanted to play with all of those things in some way, uh, while also talking about a family who um, the father is not from the United States. He's uh, from Italy. And I wanted to talk about, because uh, I'm very lucky to work with individuals who are from other countries. And I wanted to feature sort of their experience in some capacity in something. So I hope I was able to kind of do that justice, I guess. And um it's a dark story. It's uh, I hope it's scary. I think it's scary when I picture the visuals in my head. I'm like, Ugh. but, you know, so, yeah, I have uh, nocturnal creatures should be coming out. I think it'll be probably around October. Uh, I'm hoping for October. That'll be kind of cool. Um, but yeah, and I have some other short stories uh, coming out in different things. But uh, nocturnal creatures and the sequel to the triangle are the two big ones this year. I definitely highly recommend um, our listeners uh, seek out nocturnal creatures. I thought it was a, a wonderfully written um, story. Um, I know you and I talked about it uh, later um, that I really want a sequel, <laughs> but I just thought it was, um, it was a fantastic story. And I definitely got the sense of it was really um, your your love of that area really comes through. And I really liked your play with the Bigfoot mythology and the way that you brought in uh, other myth, the other stories that, that surround Bigfoot, Yeti, you know, and other cultures. And I think you really brought that in a very natural without, you know, sometimes you'll get a sense of, oh, I know why they put that in there is because they can get this or that angle. And, you know, and it'll become kind of contrite or something. But for yours, it was so natural. And, and the story of each person really bring to the overarching uh, stress and situation. Um, just really brilliantly done. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed reading it. And I, I can't recommend it enough to uh, readers or listeners when, when it does come out. 
make me cry like i'm getting <laughs> like, really are like when i hear people say stuff it's like oh i need you know. a spoiler on this book is there any since you're bringing in other mythologies is there any legend of boggy creek there is uh that's that's all i needed I okay all right the boggy creek man you sold it to me already i well, love yeah, that well, you know the fact that there that you expand on the mythology of book but the fact that you know what is our what is our usual thought when we think of bigfoot a very solitary creature yeah you really bring in and kind of blow that kind of mythology apart and really expand and give the other side which i thought yeah. was very well done uh, well executed because I, I i felt for both sides really yeah i didn't want them to just be boogeymen in the forest like i wanted them to feel like a just part of the biome um even though you know and, and but but again you know even lions are part of the biome and lions are terrifying right like it's an uh, a sasquatch or a bigfoot if it's just part of the biome would be terrifying they were i was outside last night having a cigar and bats were flying overhead and i know that the chances of this thing flying down and biting me are very minimal but you know what? Like they're terrifying. They're still scary. So like even something like that is 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 a very scary thing. And then upstate New York has wild hogs. There's there's wild you know there's bear. It's it's scary. I see little cat hair. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I wanted to really to to take my love of Bigfoot, which has existed since I was a little kid, and paint it. You know, started with Harry and the Hendersons and kind of turn it into. <laughs> You know, something, and I know, Nikki, you have to love Mary and the Hendersons. Said, like, well, I grew up in Washington, so I grew up with Mount St. Helens lore and Bigfoot lore. So, y'all, yeah. you fascinated about Bermuda Triangle, I was into those uh, two things a lot. <laughs> and I, I guess, by extension, D.B. Cooper as well. And side note, there is a movie out there where D.B. Cooper fights Bigfoot, and we've seen clips of it, and it looks like the most terrible thing in the universe. <laughs> I just watched a, a fabulous uh, movie that had Bigfoot as sort of a subplot uh, with David Cross, where he plays a, uh, a butterfly uh, uh, scientist. I don't remember the name. And uh, the, the movie is called The Dark Divide. Mm -hmm. And he goes into the Pacific Northwest and he starts having like Bigfoot related moments. And it's it's not about that. It's really just a brilliant beauty. And he's incredible in it. It's a beautiful movie. But the Bigfoot stuff going on is terrifying. And it's based on a true story. The guy was like, I went in as a butterfly scientist and I came out writing a book about Bigfoot. Like, it's ridiculous. He had a Guggenheim fellowship for it. Like, it was nuts. But um, really interesting stuff. But um, if you look on my Twitter the other day, I posted like, because I like to do this, because when I'm writing, I always picture like actors in my head of like characters and stuff like that. I posted uh, a thing with Lake Bell, Paul Schneider and stuff like that. Lake Bell is the little girl from Nocturnal Creatures grown up. So there is a sequel book that's going to come out to Nocturnal Creatures as well. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that because it was like, no, it came to an end. And I'm like, I want more. <laughs> I really enjoy writing like, I don't know. I really like writing tough women i don't I, like I, I i don't know like am i allowed to write like i'm a guy right like i shouldn't i guess i don't know like i i just really enjoy it like I, I was picturing my wife in a lot of ways in her as a little kid and like my wife is incredibly strong and i and she's a, a brilliant funny smart woman and i was kind of picturing her as a little kid as i was writing the bigfoot book and i wanted to sort of write like a almost like a an homage to her i guess in some ways but oh. You know, I really enjoy telling stories of strong women. I think, you know, it's exciting. It's fun. And uh, it's nice to see a little girl go up against a Bigfoot. Well, and I think what's nice is, uh, uh, I know we're, we're coming up to the end, but. I'm sorry. The sensitivity. Oh, no, no. Uh, the sensitivity of the girl and, you know, this, the first summer love type of thing was a nice balance, you know, you know, when uh, girls are coming of age and dealing with so many different things at, you know, along with love and her brother's off, you know, fighting the war and, and things like that. So it's, 
it, you really touched on a lot of different emotions within it. Um, thank you. That's partly why I like it so much. Oh, well, thank you. Your, your blurb means the world to me, so I can't thank you enough. <laughs> well, Rob, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast the second time. It was great to talk about the Rise Trilogy and Nocturnal Creatures as well. Um, so we always wish you continued success. Thank you so much for coming on again, sir. And we hope readers keep checking out your stuff. And we hope when we touch base again with you a little bit later, we'll talk about some even more cool stuff. Sounds good to me. I can't thank you both enough for having me. I can't thank you for all that you do. You are literally one of the three or four podcasts that I make sure I listen to literally every time a new episode comes out. I'm not even kidding. Like that's, that's like you guys are one of the few. The other ones I'm just like, meh, I don't need to hear that one today. So. Well, we sincerely appreciate it. And you're very appreciated, sir. No, well, thank you so much again. And it's always a pleasure to chat. that concludes our transmissions for this episode. This episode's bumper was provided by Heather Herman, author of Consumption and The Corpse Queen. We wish Heather much continued success. For our July programming, we will be focusing our episode on Even in the Grave, a new collection of short stories edited by James Chambers and Carol Geisander, and published by Neo Paradoxia. Our primary podcast dropping Sunday, July 10th, we will be discussing Trevor Firetog's What's Your Secret and Stephen Van Patten's Blind Spot. On the last day of July, we'll release our latest transmission episode, which will include interviews with the collection's co-editor and returning guest, Carol Geisander. She'll be joined by authors Trevor Firetog and Stephen Van Patten. If you would like to be able to follow along, we have a link in the show notes so you can procure a copy of the book for yourself. Please contact us if you'd like to be a guest on Transmissions. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we also have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.